Hello, and welcome to this week's The Proteomics Show. This is season two of a special limited series called The Faces of U.S. HUPO, sponsored by U.S. HUPO. Hi, I'm Ben Osborne. I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Neely, and this week's episode uh, featured Dr. Rachel Lance, who is a prominent science author and uh, assistant consulting professor at uh, Duke University School of Medicine. That's right. I think this would be our first uh, injury biomechanist that's been on the on the show. Um, really cool to get to talk to her. She's out to help people. She <laughs> happened to write a book you probably know about, and she's a fan of the proteins. So enjoy. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Hi, Ben and Ben. Yeah. So I want to start off by saying um, to to the listeners that this this episode is kind of in the spirit of when we have our conferences. A lot of times we'll have a plenary who's not necessarily doing proteomics, and that's basically what this is. Because so, Rachel, do you do proteomics? No, but I love <laughs> it. <laughs> Wait, now, what? This is actually funny. What? Why do you know proteomics? Like, because I find that surprising. I have a secret obsession with rabies. This is one of my (laughs) secret niche hyperfixations. First of all, it looks like the ghosts in Pac-Man. How do you not love a virus that looks like the ghosts in a video game? Second of all, because I love this idea that as a virus, it's evolved so efficiently that it kind of just travels with the neurons and by the time you see symptoms, it's too late, even with all of the medicine and the advances that we've had as a scientific community. So then to add on top of that, because it's so nefarious and it's so stealthy, this was like the inspiration for all of the field of vaccinology, right? This virus is so bad for humans that this was the original vaccine that Louis Pasteur was developing back in 1895. And he was doing it with like these slurries of animal parts. And legend has it that one of the lab assistants kept a gun in the lab in case one of the rabid dogs they were using for saliva samples bit one of the researchers and the gun was not for the dog the gun was for the researcher yeah so i I think that's just crazy and that sort of led me down the rabbit hole of learning about proteomics and not necessarily how these viruses physically exist but how they change expression and how we identify them and link them to each other So that was what first led me to that database, um, Uniprot, where I saw the scientists developing models of the proteins and developing models of the viruses. And that made a lot of sense to me that these proteins being the surface markers that we know them to be in things like blood types were also being used to hunt these viruses that I'm secretly obsessed with outside of my main job. That is, that is so funny. You said rabies. Um, that's, that was kind of the virus for me that kind of scared me to death. I mean, obviously like we know, like it does horrible things, but like when you look at rabies, there's like five proteins and and that part kind of terrified me. I'm like, okay, so here's this thing. You get it. It's super simple, but it's like super optimized. And then it slowly moves into your system. And like you were saying, yeah, by the time one to two months out, you get symptoms, you're toast. And, but it's simplicity and the simplicity, like I seriously, I, there was some moment like you, I was looking at sequences and thinking about it and it, I I have chill bumps right now. Like I, it, it truly (laughs) terrifies me. I I'm like, and and I'm not just talking like, you know, the actual progression of the disease, but that something has evolved 
in parallel with us with such simplicity and such just deadliness. Like it's, um, anyways, so, but I didn't think you were going to say ladies. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> nobody ever sees it coming. <laughs> Secret <laughs> obsession with rabies that I will pin people down and talk to them about for hours. Uh, no, but I didn't know that there were only five proteins. So that's actually fascinating to I'm me. Get that that, yeah, exact same reason. It's, <laughs> you know what? Either way, we could agree it's probably a small number. So, yeah. um, but that, that to me is, that's the power of biology and of nature because rabies didn't even really evolve for us. Like we're not the animals with the big canines. We're not the ones that other animals in the wild are afraid of getting bitten by. Right. So we're kind of collateral damage to this virus that just happens to be so refined. Uh, yeah. And these, these small number, whether that's five or six uh, of proteins can still just demolish us. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. So that's awesome. So yeah, it, w it was funny though, when I, I reached out to you and then you, you like threw out Unipro and, and again, like, I think we're kind of a fringy field and for anyone to know such things was, was so what, what do you actually do? Like, let's just bring, so bring people in on that one. <laughs> okay. So officially I am an injury biomechanist. What that means is that the mechanics part is I use the tenets of mechanical engineering, so your basic statics and your kinematics, in order to look at the way that injuries occur in biological systems. Specifically for me, humans, because obviously that's, you know, going to be where we get the most funding, it's the most area of interest. So a lot of people in this field are, our bread and butter as a field is typically car crashes because that's what's going to injure and kill human beings the most frequently. I don't personally work on car crashes very much just because I get a little bored with them. I find them a bit repetitious. And so I tend to work with other extreme environments like uh, explosives. So my doctoral work was on underwater explosions. That's an area where we don't have a lot of information about the injury threshold, what levels actually kill people. And I also work with um, undersea physiology in general, and then occasionally high altitude or outer space. Because the thing that really unites all of those environments is the lungs and breathing. If you stop breathing, that's going to kill you really fast. So that. It, I had a, a friend who was an ER doc and he was, that was his fascination was like, like in a car wreck, it's, it's that it's this like sudden stop that is what damages everything apparently. And he was just, again, you're talking about like rabies, like he would be at parties telling me about like, oh man, I saw this trauma. But so, so somehow you got into why, why underwater explosions? Like what? Wait, <laughs> well, first all, like, what is first that? All, they, no one stopped me. Is the real answer? <laughs> like, how old are you? Are you like twelve and you like turn off the eighties in a trash can full of water? Like, I did that, but you're. Uh, I I'm I'm not going to comment on that. At age twelve, that's a little early. Um, I have set off explosions in a trash can as a scientist and, and an adult <laughs> who understands how to do that responsibly. Um, no, actually I was, I was raised with a very safe and responsible example for explosives. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, my, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> my dad, 
my dad would like use fireworks with us with close supervision. And we had like lots of safety talks and supervision, me and my brothers. So that gave me, I think, a healthy respect for them. And so my early experimentation was very limited, which is probably why I have all my fingers. But um, no, what got me into it was essentially what your friend from the ER doc said. The human body, if you think about the way we've developed through evolution, we can survive every single one of these things as long as it's done on the right time scale. So and an explosion, for example, is just a quick rise in pressure. So an actual shockwave goes from zero to its maximum pressure in zero seconds. Imagine if that happened in a car. If we were sitting in a car and it went from zero to 60 miles an hour in zero seconds, we would be very hurt by that. Um, it would have it would cause some serious musculoskeletal problems. But if you do that more slowly, you're completely fine. Even three or four seconds, you're completely fine. And the same thing happens with an explosion. If you go underwater and you go to those same pressures through diving and you do it more slowly, you're completely fine. And the reason for that is because we've evolved to experience things like riding horses or falling down can actually kill you through fetal head trauma. But in general, we survive falling over. I do it constantly and I'm fine. <laughs> and it's really because of these devices that we've developed and engineered in order to change our lives. I was going to say improve our lives. I don't know if you can make that claim with explosives in particular, but at least with cars to improve our lives because we're doing things to ourselves that are not necessarily part of our evolutionary background. And I think that's really fascinating. So my goal is always from the perspective of safety and injury avoidance. Um, I really enjoy both trying to keep people from getting injured as well as allowing people to have these adventures, basically. Like, how do we go places we're not supposed to survive and explore things in places where we're, in, we're not biologically equipped? Because I think that's where the cool discoveries are also made. There's some fun science there. Okay. How, how do you assess damage? Like, oh, what do you read out from these things? It depends on the insult. Um, so if you're talking like uh, skeletal mechanics, obviously a fracture is going to be your your assessment. And that can even be micro fractures. So example, um, a lot of people in the field will do that testing using cadavers, especially for things where we're intentionally inducing injuries. You cannot intentionally give someone a spinal injury. So for that, you would typically use like a, a donated tissue sample um, and measure and see if there's a fracture, which you can then measure afterwards with like a micro CT, stuff like that. So that's pretty effective. Um, if you're doing more soft tissue damage, a lot of times we're talking to people like you folks who know more about these injury markers who are below the threshold of where I can point at it and go, that looks wrong. So we want to catch that threshold where people are having the increased risk. And so that's where like protein and protein expressions and markers are really hot topic in extreme environments right now as well. So, so what, what kind of damage for soft tissue is it? Is it that, uh, I guess we, we, we know that in like a myocardial infarction that, that you'll have like creatine kinase levels just jump through the roof is is it similar for things like that is it the, the, is that 
you know, just standard proteins are being are where they're not supposed to be. Is that kind of- It depends on the trauma. That's the <laughs> cool and frustrating part. Yeah, okay. So there are two like gold rings right now that um, that are really hot topics. So the first one is in the injury biomechanics community, uh, community uh, traumatic brain injury, TBI. So obviously TBI has been a huge topic of conversation in the U.S. over the past couple of decades. The football community actually brought a lot of that to public attention. I think that overall that's a good thing. Some of the ways in which it's been discussed publicly are not scientifically accurate. And so there's been a lot of alarm that is, um, I would say not accurately describing the risk. Nobody is downplaying the problems of TBI, but some of the way that it's talked about is not correct. But one of the things that would be really helpful to the community is having some kind of biomarker. And that's something that everyone is actively searching for. So there's a big annual conference for military health every August. So I'm excited to go to that in two weeks called MHSRS. And last year, possibly about half of all of the talks and posters were about the search for this protein biomarker or any kind of biomarker indicating mild levels of TBI because we need something that is non-invasive or minimally invasive to know when people are at risk, when they need to be taken out of the combat or training scenario or off the football field, things like that. So that would be a huge deal if we could find some kind of indicator of the neurotrauma. I say we, I'm more cheering from the sidelines because I'm like, we've discussed a little bit more larger side skills, but um, yeah, that's one of the really big ones. The other big one that is, has a smaller community of effect, but would be similarly impactful is looking for a marker for decompression sickness. So we haven't talked about that yet in this podcast, but decompression sickness is essentially an illness that occurs when you remove ambient pressure too quickly. So most people think about it with scuba diving. Like if you're scuba diving deep and you come up too quickly, you develop bubbles in your body. The same thing actually can happen happen with astronauts. So the undersea community and NASA work very closely together on this question because astronauts who leave the space shuttle can develop decompression sickness. Um, And one of the things about decompression sickness is that it's just cloaked in mystery. It's really complicated. People have been studying it for 150 years. We know there are bubbles. We don't know where they come from. We don't know what they're nucleating off of. We don't know exactly where they're getting stuck to cause the symptoms. We don't know how to identify low level or marginal cases. So if you have a diver who comes up and they're like, oh man, my shoulder's slightly sore. Does this person have decompression sickness or did they just like maybe tow some buoys extra? Like, do they have muscle stiffness from carrying tanks? We don't have a clinical way to differentiate those. And the treatments for the (laughs) decompression sickness are intense. You're talking a minimum of eight hours inside of a hyperbaric chamber, up to 16 hours inside of a hyperbaric chamber, which then, of course, requires um, an, at least one attendant in there, at least one person on the outside and an on-site physician. And so these are incredibly expensive, incredibly time-consuming for all of the teams. And there is a huge cost to over-treating. Um, and also 
the faster you treat, the better the outcome is. So a lot of times this sickness starts, DCS starts as like this little tiny pain, this little tiny tingling in one joint or one patch of skin. And then over the course of several hours, it'll bloom into a far more serious condition. Well, if we know early on, this is actually what's happening. Yes, we need to get you to a treatment center. That would be incredibly invaluable. Um, But the the research on that in terms of biomarkers and diagnostics is still very active field of study. Okay. So, so what's the worst case scenario for, for that? I mean, it sounds bad, but, but, but I, for, if it is a, one of these cases, is it, is it death? Oh or yeah. It, oh yeah. Uh, and the fatalities yeah. are brutal. Like, I don't want to be macabre here, but we're talking like choking to death while spewing up bubbly blood. Like they're, they're brutal wow. graphic deaths and yeah, but those, okay. I mean, those are easier to diagnose. So yes, wow. this person, <laughs> sorry, dark humor is part of the job when you study injuries <laughs> and fatalities every single day. So, um, Wow. But yes, That's people in the in the interim case, like the the moderate cases, um, those are almost emotionally more difficult to deal with because those are the ones where you have a more reasonable chance at treating and healing the people. And so in those cases, we can still talk about long-term permanent paralysis um, is a pretty frequent outcome. So that's one of the worst Uh, permanent neurological trauma of any kind is a pretty common outcome. So so um my what i do one of the many weird things that i i do is is i study marine mammals and there's it's it's fun because you know you've got these ultimate divers right like a weddell seal will dive like a mile underwater for like almost an hour you've got a the the beaked whales like coover's beak well like again like it'll dive even deeper for even longer and then they come up right and they're not like spewing blood and it stinks because you know we've got a couple of these systems where you know veterinarians at zoo or at aquariums have trained like so at Mystic Aquarium they have these belugas that'll dive they'll take samples before and after they dive and I think they're also doing it with um, bottlenose dolphins but the problem I think and again I don't want to discredit that is that it's probably not big enough right like we need like a Weddell seal that goes like a mile underwater but but it's funny you mentioned this because like this is like our argument of like why we should be studying these animals. But beyond that, like, so as you study humans in this uh-huh. decompression sickness, like you've got to be thinking about this. Like how are, how is an elephant seal over here doing this and not dying? And oh, again, as we've constantly. evolved, yeah, like it, because so <laughs> they've got to have bubble, right? Like that's a, that's a, it, that seems like a pretty, it's physics, right? Or it's, yeah. it's just a law. So there's Why? some intersection of physics and physiology that's keeping them safe and we don't know what it is. I, yeah, no, I agree with you. And also it makes me hate dolphins a little bit. Like, how are you doing this? Give us your secrets. It's, um, yeah, no, we, we, yeah. We, we always, we pitch it from like a standpoint of like an infarction, like if we can understand this and, and we think that like there's some proteins that help deal with like the, sh- the after effects of it. But when you're just talking basic microbubble, like i don't feel like you know you just said there's like half of this conference is going to be on tbi is like people looking for markers like i think there's like a handful of people doing this work and doing it well and i don't even think they're they're focused on like metabolites or 
protein marker, you know, like how do you deal with that injury? But like basic physiology, you've had fits and starts, but it's there, right? Like it, I feel yeah. like, um, but so how do you do any like comparative work? I mean, you're talking about humans. I mean, is it- I don't personally do comparative work. I work with generally human subject volunteers who I try to get to survive my testing. That's a joke. Everyone's alive. Um, <laughs> I was really, you were serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was like. Oh, that was really deadpan. Um, no, I, I generally, pool, you're be fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I generally work with human subject volunteers and we flirt with the edges of injury. Um, so, but in our field, like in our community, yes, there are people doing comparative work. So there are marine biologists who are part of my same naval research community. I'm very excited every time they get up to talk. Um, They're spectacular and they're looking at a lot of these marine diving mammals and they're doing this similar work. I actually now want to put you in a room with them. And before we started recording, I made the mistake of gushing about uh, a recent study. I was at a talk last week where a university in France and it's in Brittany and I'm not going to try and pronounce the French name because I do not want to insult the people of France that deeply, <laughs> but uh, they did a lab or uh, a series where they bred a strain of decompression sickness resistant mice, and then they used that strain to compare to the orig- origin strain to look at the genomic and the proteomic changes. And I was just on the edge of my seat. I was so excited. And again, I'm not a subcellular person, so they were listing specific changes in proteins and in the genome and i was sitting there and i was like but do these relate to humans come on like that was my first question Mm. i'd already got it typed out so thankfully they answered with confidence that they do think those relate to humans but now i want to put them in a room with you and the marine people from our normal our normal um funding discussions and just see what happens and bring popcorn so yeah and and that's i mean yeah like there's all you know humans aren't giant rats but we're also not giant seals um, but at least yeah. they're, a little, they're a little closer. Um, no, and, and, and you know, as as proteomics people, it's it's fun because you're almost like the other side. Like we deal with this like molecular, you know, yes, yeah, sometimes it's a leading indicator of phenotype, but like there are things that like, you know that the molecules are what give you the phenotype, microbubble resistant, whatever it is. But like sometimes that's a stretch, right? Like why? Why would like, why is some protein or some like, there's steps there and you know you're coming from this final stage and we're over here but like there's probably missing steps it's not just a protein it's a structure it's a system right i'm sure you're right but i don't know what the link is right like isn't that the exciting part like and i think that to circle back that's kind of what brought me to unipro was trying to understand that aspect of it especially as we were going through the initial outbreaks of COVID, and we're going through the initial attempts to characterize what the hell is happening in the world and Watching that database was to me kind of like the science Super Bowl, but in slow motion, because (laughs) I was like, well, yeah, again, I come from injury and trauma patterns that I'm studying are mostly respiratory related decompression sickness. Your, your primary immediate 
concern with these patients is respiratory support. Um, your primary concern with a blast victim is respiratory support. We're seeing huge amounts of lung trauma in both of these pathologies. And so watching COVID roll out and watching this as a respiratory disease, and my background as an engineer is originally in building breathing systems for underwater use. So looking at these linkages in Unipro and watching as people were starting to characterize how this thing was attacking pulmonary cells and drawing the parallels to the earlier like coronaviruses. And I was just sitting there like looking at these overlap maps and just cheering for the science that was happening. Um, it was so exciting to me because that to me explained what we were seeing in the hospital. I mean, obviously not fully, like you said, there are huge gaps, but it was like we took the mask off the monster. Yeah, and, and I think with the, I, I can see that, but that is also the, like, coming from me, that might be the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. Like, watching Unipro <laughs> is a slow Super Bowl. Like, I, I love Unipro. Like, this is like my jam. It's like, that was a lot for me. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Listen, I will be really honest. I, cause I'm also a science writer. Obviously that's how you found me. I pit, tried so hard to pitch articles about Unipro and how this was happening. And I couldn't pitch it, which is partly like probably my fault because I, I'm very excited about this topic. Obviously I think everyone listening to this can agree that this was a cool topic, but like, obviously I wasn't communicating how that was happening well enough to get the article picked up, but yeah, I wanted to bring it to a more mainstream audience. I, I'm gonna, yes, I'm going to take that as a compliment. I, Thank I'm going to tell them. <laughs> so it's funny. So, you know, Unipro is um, in England. The, the team is, and it's really not that many people. It's like 10 people. And I am going to give them a heads up to, to oh, at least I, listen no, to those. Oh, I talked you to are, them. Oh, yeah, you, no, you I talked oh, okay, like, yeah. to them. I talked to them. I emailed with them. Yeah, they were very nice. And it was like an incredibly exciting interview. Hi, um, I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm sorry I couldn't land the article. The moment they had me was, oh, I'm blanking at his name. I should have looked it up. I, I should have expected this. But the very nice gentleman who does the protein illustrations. And he was explaining how he just started doing that for fun on his own. And he's still like the one person that does all of them to help him visualize how these things are working. And that clicked so hard for me because I'm also really visual. And that was part of what had sucked me in to this whole world of protein analysis, right? Is the idea that you guys are also looking at what these things physically look like and how they interact with each other. It's just on a smaller size scale where sometimes you have to doodle them yourselves. Mm. So. Wow. <laughs> so, okay, so <laughs> at some point we're gonna have to ask about, yeah, the, the writing. So, so we have some oh, people in our yeah. field that are writers. Like I think, okay. Ben, ben who's, or Oswald, who's the, who's the guy, the pretty young guy, he actually has like a fantasy book. Um, and I feel like you have a book or two, Ben Osborne. Yeah, yeah. but um, I, I don't. I'm drawing a blank on who's who's the fantasy writer. Okay, there, there's somebody else out there. So, okay, so how can you? So this is so okay. Part of the show is we kind of get people's stories, right? We've talked about your kind of your interest in the the injuries and and how you got to be like this this. Well, you can go back over it, but can you tell me? When did the writing part happen and like, how did that happen? If you, just as much as you want. 
I might one up myself on nerd factor here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, <laughs> the writing part happened because I was trying to keep a research project alive. <laughs> so essentially, when I finished my PhD in which was November 2016, and like I said, it that was underwater explosives. And one part of that, like one of my papers um, that ended up getting rolled into my dissertation was about the Civil War submarine, the H.L. Henley, and the blo- the bomb that it had set off in 1864. Well, first of all, that was my first experience as a scientist where I could not change the topic. People only wanted to talk to me about that research. And all of a sudden, no matter what I tried, people kept looping back to my science, which had never happened before. Normally, they couldn't wait for a topic shift. So um, what that kind of put this idea in my head that I had this story that people cared about. But then I went back to work for the U.S. Navy. Um, Things didn't work out because they were originally going to leave me at Duke to finish this project that I had started based on a series of deaths and one death in particular that had occurred in the divers that I was working with at the time. Um, one person, his name was Dewey Smith, and I've since written an article about his death. Um, it's in task and purpose, so it's very easily accessible. You can Google it. Um, but he had died of hypoxia, which is low oxygen, lack of oxygen on a dive that was supporting my detachment that I was working with. And he was extremely qualified. Like he was just a spectacular diver. He did nothing wrong. The pressure waves from nearby underwater tools went through the magnetic buttons on his equipment and turned off his electronics without him knowing. So freak accident. Yeah. Freak accident. But yeah, he, this death pattern hypoxia, it's responsible for about half of the deaths in the rebreathing diving community. So rebreathers are tools that um, technical divers, more advanced divers use that recycle their breathing gas. They require electronics to add oxygen to the breathing loop, which obviously anytime you're bringing electronics underwater, you have the potential for problems. Um, so that death obviously made a lot of ripples. Um, I didn't know him personally, but it's a really small world. And, um, I knew all of the people he was diving with and his coworkers and stuff like that. So as an engineer, I consider it my responsibility to address it when something like that happens. And so I'd started a project to see if we could just use a standard hospital pulse oximeter, you know, the little glowy fingertip clip, um, which measures the percent of your hemoglobin that's saturated with oxygen as a warning device for hypoxia that was fully redundant to the rebreather's electronics. Redundancy is kind of the gold standard in engineering. The aerospace industry uses redundancy to keep themselves really safe. So they're, they're the industry we always try to emulate. Um, so I'd started just a little project. I did it on the side of my PhD while I was at Duke, um, you know, with all my free time. And it turned out, it turned out that it worked. It worked really well. Um, it provided about a minute of warning time, which when all you have to do is push a button to add more gas, like a minute is, is actually plenty. So, um, 
I had gotten funding in hand to continue that project, to take it underwater, to address a bunch of different environmental conditions and placements on the body and start optimizing towards a, a producible device. And um, the Navy decided that they wanted me to move and they were going to have me send back all of my funding, um, which we had in hand, which, um, you know, I talked to some chocolate about. So, um, but I decided that for me, the most important part was not my job that I loved. It was the reason that I loved that job was because I got to address and try to prevent these types of fatalities. And so I asked Duke if they would host me instead. Um, they said yes. They gladly accepted the government's money. And um, I was, but it was only part-time. Like it was a really part-time project. It was, I was only funded for like something like twelve or $13,000 a year. So I was working for Duke part-time. And I was trying to figure out other ways to make ends meet. So I adjunct taught a class at UNC. And I just was like, hey, why not write a book? This sounds like everyone's plan A. <laughs> <laughs> so that thankfully it worked out. And, um, I, yeah, I, I can largely credit my literary agent for that. Lori Abkmeyer. She's kind of taken me by the hand and also smacked me in the face and been like, Rachel, this is how it's done. But, um, she's taught me a lot. And, uh, yeah, thankfully people have cared about this story enough and that project was successful at the same time. So the book came out in the waves, um, came out April 2020 when everyone was talking about the Civil War. And um, yeah, that was a different experience, but um, I'm really proud of it. And then the second, I, I loved it. I've always loved reading and I've always loved writing. And so that was how I discovered that I, I genuinely just love this as a field. It gives me kind of a balance with science, uh, the ability to explain science to people and the ability to sit at my keyboard and talk about it all day is pretty great. Uh, it's kind of what we're doing right now. And um, yeah, so the second book will be out April 16th of 2024. That one is available for pre-sale now. It's called Chamber Divers. And I'm really excited about that one too, because I get to force the world to learn about dive science um, <laughs> and how it made D-Day possible. So... <laughs> So, yeah, but the, that I, and wait, I'm going to ask, I have to ask two questions because I feel like I should okay. have asked. So that so was a really long answer. No, so, it, was yeah. perfect, it was a perfect answer. Okay. So, I mean, first off, just, I should have asked you, so you're, were you working for the Navy? So you're, you're, I was a with, civil servant. Civil yeah, servant. So I was directly employed by the U.S. Navy, but mm -hmm. I was not active duty. I was not a uniformed person. So, so like we work with people like at NRL, um, Naval Research Lab. Um, obviously, you know, we, I've, I've gotten funding from like ORNL, the, uh, whatever it is. Um, but so you're, yeah, <laughs> that's it. ONR, not ORNL. Oh my gosh, Ben, why are you not at our yearly program of years? Uh, How I have was, we not crossed paths? I would, I would have been there in 2011. I, um, Laura Kinker and Linda, anyways, I know all of them, um, because they funded our sea line work because we worked with, yeah. but, but anyways, but, but so, okay. So you're, so you're getting a PhD or at Duke, right? Yes. And then, and then they're like, Hey, you did the, you did the Dewey Smith project and that's okay. Got that. Okay. Then my question is, I, I realize you know, you're this like hardcore scientist doing you know, what I consider like really like it's hard science, but in the book, like you had to do legit history stuff, right? Like you were, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, like you had to, you were tracing like the bomb makers and the, and the different crews and 
that seems like a lot. Like, I mean, because it's one thing to like, let me describe to you how this probably happened from a scientific standpoint, but you had to do all this other stuff. Okay, well, let me just clarify. I defended my PhD in November 2016, and the book came out April 2020. So there was a time gap there. Yes. So I did have to do a lot of the hardcore research stuff related to the blast itself. So I was doing a lot of National Archives trips. That one scene from that made it into the book. Um, All of that was how I learned how to do intense historical research because I needed to be able to replicate this bomb that the crew of the H.L. Henley set off. And uh, to do that, I needed to go through the historical documents, which are not available on the internet. So I had to learn actual library stuff in D.C., um, which was, it it was trial by fire, right? Like, and it turns out I actually really like that too. It, it's kind of a, I describe it as similar to gambling. Um, you know, we've we've shown over and over again that the best way to addict someone is to give them unpredictable positive rewards. And so that's what archival research is. And I think it's the same thing with science, to be honest. You can show up to your lab or your reading room and you can expect day after day after day of flat nothing. And then one day you're going to strike gold. You're going to turn the right sheet of paper or your experiment is going to click into place and you're going to have the information that you need and you're going to want to scream about it, but that's not permitted in such environments. So um, that was, yeah, that was how I learned about archival research and how to do that. And so scaling that blast is really important to the physics. So it was important to me to trace the black powder, to trace the size of the bomb, to trace how well confined it was because those aspects of blast physics are really key to the actual calculations. But then after I'd finished the project and I was more in the phase of writing a book, that's when I went back and I started doing the same type of work for the human story. And I started trying to trace the people and why they were there and explaining why they were there. So Mm. some of those questions that had haunted me as a person rather than as a scientist. That, that makes so much. So you were just quite, you had to replicate the bomb. And then after you did that, you're like, you could fill it in that. Okay. That makes so much more sense. Um, and yeah, it's and that's beautiful. And I, that's, I mean, that's thank you. wonderful. But that's what I think is beautiful about the history of science, right? Like you can look at these stories with every single one of our fields. We were just gushing about rabies, which I could do for days. If you're ever in town, let me know. Um, but, um, Right. And then you go back to it and you look at it and you come up with these stories of Louis Pasteur and the Pasteur Institute. And oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name of the first boy treated treated with the rabies vaccine. But you look at his story. His mother had a scientific linkage and that's how she knew about the work of Pasteur. And that's why when her dog her her son was bitten by a rabid dog, she carried him to that lab and brought him to that lab and was like, save my boy. And she trusted these people to just inject him in the stomach with meat slurries of rabies stuff, right? So the the history and the human story of how these developments are made touches every single one of our fields. Man, I, wow. Yeah. I, I love the gambling analogy. Slash <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> Thanks. That's me trying to explain scientifically why I enjoy reading old documents. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, in what format are these documents? Like, is you're going? I'm just trying to picture you going through an archive. Is this like old? old patents so there's trademark forms these are old lab mode books it depends um i'd actually be happy to email you some samples if you want but um so yeah pass (laughs) um okay so it depends it depends on which time period you're working in so during the civil war research these are largely handwritten letters and the civil war both the south and the north had a couple of spectacular scientists working for them doing their bomb development um so obviously they were doing horrifying things it was a time of war i don't think any of us alive has the experience to really judge but in terms of scientific method they were actually well ahead of their time period so the bomb maker for the south was named gabriel rains there was like one guy who was really doing all of their bomb designs and he left behind a textbook and he did this in a very methodical way so it's not only his documents but the other documents from everyone else who ended up helping him they went about this in a very procedural fashion and they tested and they photographed their testing and they looked at the amount of damage being done by all of their munitions and can it penetrate the armor on the ironclads and how do we have to armor our ironclads so it's me going through essentially 150 year old lab notebook Um, And then also for the human stories, there's a lot of genealogy records there that's involved. So those are little bits and pieces of paper that you just find random places um, in random files that that's very challenging to do. And then um, also letters from the officers. So the officers were reporting back and forth to their headquarters by writing repeated letters and reports. They would, in those, document what they were doing every day, document what had happened on board their ship that day. So a lot of the work was that, was reading these letters and these ship logs from the officers. Um, so for my next book, uh, which is World War II, I was very excited very excited to be in the era after the invention of the typewriter because the common belief that people's handwriting has gotten worse is not true. The fancy writing that you see was by professional scribes. Everyone else in the Civil War had trash handwriting. So I was really (laughs) excited to be in the World War II area where things were typewritten. Um, So for that one, it was similar. I went through the scientific group that I was researching. Um, They were doing dive science required to make D-Day possible. And the scientific group left behind all their lab notebooks. So that was hundreds, if not thousands of pages of handwritten notes from their experiments. They would have people inside the chamber and people outside the chamber taking notes on the same experiment at the same time. So I had to go through all of those and align them by date and timestamp to build narratives. And so that's how I built like experimental narratives from those. Um, and then filled in some of the like sensory details just from my experiences working in chambers. Cause certain things don't change. Like the fact that it gets hot when they pressurize, right? Like that's universally true. Um, yeah. So, so back yeah, to like so these, these civil war documents that you're reading, you know, like are there lab books like, 
Dearest John, I hope this finds you well. I have, my dog died and my cow had a cat. Like, like how verbose is it? Because yes. I just imagine oh it's, it's like, today's weather was balmy, but not like last week. <laughs> the birds are here. And I blew things up. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what type of document, but you're actually surprisingly spot on with the diaries. So when I had to go through diaries, yes. <laughs> there was one guy named John Roy. And I swear at the beginning of the, I had to read his whole diary. And I swear at the beginning of the war, he had like, he must have had 12 kids. By the end of the war, they were all dead. No. And it, it, it was sad, but it was kind of what you kind of what you just described it was like Susie died of cholera today we shipped 12 bushels of grain and no. the weather was foggy like yeah, yeah that's exactly <laughs> that's, that's pretty much this guy's diary so um yeah but the the scientists are more straightforward and professional even at that time before the real invention of or what we consider the scientific method they were a little bit more strict to like we use this kind of shot and it hit this far and here was our distance, right? Mm. So more of what we would consider proper lab notebook entries. But that, yeah, there's I, some of that. I, I love, I, there I was, go on. There, oh, sorry. There was one um, union officer who was supposed to be in Charleston a lot, like, or in the Charleston area participating in the bombing of that city. And reading his stuff he just sounds like the whiniest person to work with every letter is like my health is poor i must return north the weather here is too hot for me yes (laughs) like that's his starting to every letter and he's just essentially trying to get out of being in the south in the summer (laughs) yeah i feel like that's a pretty standard like people that move here from boston at utah team are like god it's hot I have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel yeah. like, that's, like you said, it's, it's constant. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is it? I always feel like it's like the, the malaise of the malaria. Like there's always these places where, like, and they moved to the mountains during the summer to avoid the malaria. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. I, you reminded me, I have to ask something before I forget because of my two year old okay. son, he had to read some book this summer. Uh, it was like the secrets of the Hunley. I think it was by Sarah, oh, Sarah something or another. He asked me, to ask you about this concept of a union spy that was there to like sabotage it. Is that a thing or did he just make that up because it sounded fun and he's, he's 10. I have read that book and I yeah. don't remember the union spy theory in particular, <laughs> but there was a lot of espionage on both sides. Yeah. And so there was a lot of what he might be referring to is there was definite espionage feeding information to the North about the submarines. So they weren't necessarily there for sabotage that we have documentation of, but there definitely were spies that were feeding this information back. So that's part of how the union knew that these submarines existed. Many of the ships that they had outside of Charleston had defensive measures prepared um, just in case they were attacked. So for example, they would have chains dangling in the water to, pardon me, to try and like stop a submarine or set off their bomb prematurely or whatever. Um, okay. So okay. depend, I would need the, I would need the word for word report. He, from your it's, he's of 10 <laughs> and he, he probably just yeah. heard it and that became, you know, it's where it's like, what are they going to remember? You know, they'll fixate on one thing and that's the yeah, whole story. Yeah. And you know, I remember. Me. Yeah. 
Come on. They're definitely were spies, uh, but not necessarily with the goal of sabotage. Maybe he filled it in. But because but down here, you know, the Hunley is a very real thing. You know, like we've been to like the grave of the what three crews? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, that's a grave yeah. that you can go to. And obviously we've never seen the actual Hunley. It costs a lot of money to see. Um, but yeah, it's it's here. It's the Hunley is all over town too. So it's yeah. it's very present. So fun things about that. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want to go into Civil War history too much, but that Battery Park there, that's one of the things I think you might be referencing. Battery Park, there's a memorial to the Hunley crew, the final Hunley crew oh, no. at the it, entry. It, the, the one, well, you tell me that one. No, at Magnolia Cemetery, there's like... Oh, no, no. Yeah. The yeah. Graves. So not the, it's not the grapes. Yeah, Magnolia. Okay. okay. Well, we that's another story. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the parts of the South that aren't on the plaque. Um, <laughs> so at the, at Battery Park, there is a plaque based memorial to the Hunley crew. But what's interesting to me about that is if you look at it, it was put up in 1898. So you kind of ask yourself, well, why 1898? Um, the crew, the ship went to, oh, ben, Ben's making a face. I, he might I already know. know the answer. I know this. Yeah. Thing. So the, the ship went down in 1864. What ended up happening is Plessy versus Ferguson, which I believe was 1897. I might be a year or two off on that. But essentially, late 1890s, in the response of Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the Supreme Court saying segregation is okay, a lot of these cities put these plaques and memorials at the entrances and in public parks as a reminder to Black people that they were no longer welcome there or no longer legally welcome there. Um, so that is part of the Hunley Memorial and why that was put in place at that time period then. So that has kind of that additional context. The other thing that I think is really interesting about the cemetery at Magnolia is that they buried all three of the crews there. Right. So this thing had gone down, the Hunley had gone down twice before its final sinking when it set off its own bomb and then disappeared into the night. One of the sinkings, all eight of the crew died, including Horace Hunley himself. So that's why the submarine was renamed. And then another sinking, five of the eight crew died and three managed to escape. And then, of course, in the final sinking, all eight died. So one of the crew member in an earlier sinking was actually a free black man named Absalom Williams. And so this myth of the black Confederate has long been thoroughly debunked. It was completely propaganda. It just didn't happen. So Absalom Williams being present in the sub to me is kind of implying that he wasn't there voluntarily. He was a 19 year old black kid who was not an enslaved person. And he ends up in this Confederate submarine at one of these positions on the crank handle that is very well documented to be considered unskilled labor. Like crank positions number four and five were considered to be like, we just need a human being who can turn a handle. And so that's why you see in these previous crews and in the final crew, the people there who have not had a lot of practice, the people there who are conscripted or recruited at the last minute. And of course, the records written down after the final sinking, after the Hunleys disappeared, I'll say like, yes, yes, everyone was a volunteer, we swear. But now I'm wondering, did this poor young black kid get forced into a submarine 
and then buried with a Confederate flag on his headstone forever. Because even when, yeah, even when they recovered the bodies, um, they found where they had originally been buried. It was actually under what had been turned into a parking lot, which is why they were dug up and reinterred. Absalom Williams had been buried separately. So, yeah, it's it's complicated it's, and it's not on the not on the plaque. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, we we live down here. I mean, as an aside, I'm not even going to deal with all the stupid things we do. The cool thing, the cool Civil War <laughs> thing we're doing uh, locally that you see a lot more is there's a lot of focus on like Robert Smalls, which is probably one of the better I, stories. And, and you're starting to see that like more focused on in town. Um, That's amazing. I'm so glad to hear that. Okay, just for podcast purposes, Robert Smalls was an enslaved man who escaped and then took over a Confederate ship and pioneered it to like free a bunch of other enslaved people as well. He is so cool. And I am dying for the movie about him. And, and I don't be- know why we don't have one already. <laughs> and then became like a like a, a House of Representatives, like became a politician. Yeah. Like, I mean, the guy is is incredible, right? I mean, he had this huge yeah, life, but yeah, they're stealing stealing the boat pretty crazy yeah i don't know why there's not a movie already i this makes me mad on a basis more regular than it should so i occasionally see it uh on the front page of reddit like that that it gets there where somebody's like why, why is there not a movie yet right <laughs> nice <laughs> but, but but locally they are you're getting like, plaques and things that are we're realizing the things we did wrong we're trying to. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, listen, half my family is from Italy, but the other half is from the deep South. And so like, I understand, but I, I, I understand, but I also grew up with an Italian grandfather who immigrated to America after having fought for the fascists. So he, I grew up listening to stories about how great America was because he didn't necessarily want to be fighting for the fascists and how great it was that we were in a democracy and we had all these freedoms. So that really informs my personal perspective on you can really dislike the reasons that a politician start a war and still be respectful of the individuals because you don't necessarily know how they personally ended up where they ended up. So I'm not, I'm never trying to be disrespectful of any individual people. I do think that we should respect everyone's injury, um, everyone's histories. That's part of why I do injury bomb mechanics, right? It doesn't matter why the crew of the Henley ended up in that boat. In terms of their bodies, we can still learn something from them. We learned something about modern day blast trauma from them. They're the first case report of blast being fatal through a closed surface. So, or first demonstrated case report. Um, so to me, that's kind of the beauty of my field. And part of what I love about it is I don't necessarily, as a scientist, care about what a person has done prior to their injury. I can still use it to prevent future ones. Mm. Wow. Okay. I, I want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, this is typically the point where we, where we, ta- we ask people what they're most excited about about proteomics going forward. But I think that a better idea here would be to see if we could if we could just like throw together a proteomics study, right? Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, especially because I think I already answered that question. Like, obviously rabies, <laughs> and DCS, <laughs> and TBI. <laughs> so. Yeah, but I think more, more of what I'm thinking is that if, oh, I, I assume that there hasn't been a lot of work in what you do 
in, in these tissues in terms of proteomics? Because I, I've certainly, I haven't seen it. Uh, is there a lot? Or, I mean, the, the study that you just recently saw presented, uh, is that kind of where, where it ends? As far as I know, again, this is not my primary area. I'm a spectator. But um, as far as I personally know, no, there's not a lot. Our world tends to be very small um, in terms of number of scientists involved. But I'm really excited for it because, like I said, more accurate diagnostics for this stuff, especially if you can come up with something. Obviously, a lot of proteomics involves heavy lab work still. But if you can come up with something that informs our understanding of this disease, even if you come up with something that indicates like, hey, this is largely an inflammatory response, um, that would be a huge deal for us in terms of understanding what's happening and understanding early treatments in order to minimize, um, first of all, the risk of getting something full-blown that leads to paralysis and, and preventing long-term negative sequelae. So. How, what, what's a good, so something I always wonder, and so, I, I, so I, I, my background was at the medical university here and so dealing with a lot of physicians and then later veterinarians, like what's your, if you had to have a perfect sample type you know, let's say somebody, a diver comes up, what do you, what do you mm-hmm. want? Like, what's your point? What's your point of care test? Like right there? Like, are you spitting a tube? Well, I guess spitting a tube, that'd be a good one. Spitting um, a tube would be easiest. First of all, divers spit a lot anyway. So, um, they're just really pretty people. We're just saliva filled people. No, anytime you have a mouthpiece in your body naturally generates more saliva. So okay. this is like a thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, though, the, obviously that would be the easiest, especially because if you're doing something shipboard. Um, mm-hmm. are, are, are there repositories? Like, it, it, is there a freezer of, uh, of samples? Oh my God, make it happen now. Three people who. Oh have, my God. Uh, there, right? There, yeah, there are some repositories of like saliva and blood samples, but those are typically held by the institutions that took them. Um, so I don't know that there are any publicly available repositories. So yeah. for those, you would typically look at like the government labs. So if you've already talked with NRL, Naval Research Lab, um, that would be a great resource. NSMRL up in Connecticut, that's the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory. I, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect they have something similar. Um, I know for certain the Navy Experimental Diving Unit down in Panama City, Florida has done work like that. Um, but again, yeah, because of privacy concerns, these wouldn't necessarily be publicly accessible. So. Uh, you know, so, so that's one of our loopholes in proteomics right now is that, uh, that uh, you know, this, so uh, we can go to like the, like the cancer genome atlas and we can download the proteomics data from, from all of wow. these, these people, right? And all of these tumors. The genomics information, even if you have a grant from the Cancer Genome Atlas, you may spend six to 12 months just waiting for permission to access that genomics information. Oh Where the proteomics data is just like a click download. So, I will say that it is very common for us to take blood and saliva samples at Duke for diving studies. Um, this proteomics has not necessarily been part of what I have included in my IRBs and proposals, but I would be thrilled to talk about it. Well, so, and yeah. the, the nice thing, you know, uh, I, we're going to get on like a soapbox, but, you know, proteomics, the, we excel, well, we excel, but also suck at biofluids. We, we excel because if you're studying genes in biofluids, it doesn't really make sense. 
right? Because uh-huh. they're they're like the sec- the secretome. So the secretome of your blood, the secretome of your saliva. But that's where like studying protein abundance makes sense. We're bad because it's just it's hard. Like it, we're we're better yeah. than nothing, but it's it's hard. There's like dynamic range issues. <laughs> saliva has a lot of um, issues with just the sample itself. But like I mean, even in our lab, uh, my former lab, like. And this sounds hokey, but you know they were taking saliva samples of people before and after meditation, and we could see changes. So, like they're a, they are a rich resource, and I don't see why you wouldn't have these leading indicators of pick your outcome, and then you know you could combine that with some sort of like uh, an ELISA or a laminar flow or whatever lateral flow assay. Um, mm. That's crazy. Okay. That's crazy that you just said during meditation. Cause I had no idea you would see changes on that rapid a time scale. Again, revealing my ignorance about the field. Well, well, again, like, yeah, that's again, the fun thing about protein abundance is that it can change quite fast. And, and there's cases where it happens faster than the genes or slower than, the, you know, there's, that's a whole other been just put in a giant proposal about this, like relating transcript abundance with protein abundance, but it can happen on yeah. very quick timescales. That's really cool. Because I mean, right now I'm doing, I just on Monday did my very first experiment of a new series. Very excited about it. Um, But we're using NEARS, near infrared spectroscopy to look at differences in blood oxygenation to the brain. Um, And this is really the first time this has been done underwater or in hyperbaric scenarios, just because of the mechanical obstacles of taking electronics underwater and under pressure. Um, It's very complicated. It is not as easy a jump as it would ideally be. Um, but a wonderful group engineering group has collaborated with us and built us a device that we can take underwater and under pressure. And, um, we're taking arterial blood grass draws. And so I'm kind of subjecting the subjects to all of our main accidents that occur in diving, like hyperoxia, high oxygen, hypercarbia, high carbon dioxide, hypoxia, low oxygen. And we're having them do this like under different scenarios in the dry, in the water, under pressure, in the, on the surface. And, um, we're taking blood samples after each one of these sessions. Um, and we are naturally feeling select tubes, as I mentioned, anytime you put in a mouthpiece, you're generating large quantities of saliva. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, that that's really fascinating. Um, okay, wait, I didn't, so, I didn't even consider were, that. You were joking um, when when you, you said that you're you're kind of flirting with the uh, with the edges of injury. <laughs> so, you, I was. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I wasn't joking. Um, okay. I wasn't joking. Yes. We, okay. So obviously safety is number one, always okay. safety. Yeah. And this is a, a lecture that I give to my test subjects every single time they come in that anytime they're uncomfortable or they're feeling uncomfortable, I want them to tell me um, because it is more important to me that we not cause them serious distress than it is that I finished the experiment. But yes, we do. We subject them to intentional, the edges of diving insults. Um, And I I work very carefully with the body of literature to make sure that we're not doing anything that's going to um, cause them actual physiological trauma. Right. And then there's also like constant monitoring. So I'm 
every experiment I'm at the data acquisition computer, I'm watching their EKG, I'm watching their arterial pressure, I'm monitoring their breathing patterns, I'm monitoring their gas with mass spectrometer. Um, they, you know, they have personnel who are informed with them at every moment, like literally within arm's reach. So yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, interestingly, most of our subjects are divers because they are so well informed about the nature of these accidents. So mm. these are people who come to us because they understand how serious these things can be when they happen to people naturally. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of, I mean, that I, I, I do a lot of study. Like I, I volunteer for all sorts of things because I, Me too. <laughs> well, because, yeah, like I know I want samples. And so if I know I want samples, I'm going to go, like I've I've done so many vaccine trials and pretty much anything that they ask me I'm like yeah let's do it like inject me that's awesome <laughs> but but do I I tried to sign up for COVID vaccine trials yeah but they at that point like they'd already had enough white ladies mm. so um, <laughs> but you know I gave I gave it my best shot but do <laughs> does I like I mean not your stuff that you're discussing but like I know they have like a hotel where they give people viruses or they make people sick and they're like, I need you to be here for like two weeks and we're going to sample you. Like, you know, Ben's talking about like you doing things, but like there's studies I hear about at Duke that I'm like, they got to do that to humans. Like we gave them the <laughs> flu. <laughs> we gave them dysentery. Like they give people horrible things and then measure them and observe them. Like, I don't know about that. I did interview the vaccinology, two of the vaccinology people for like a COVID vaccine piece. Um, because when the COVID vaccines came out, I was like, if I want to do an experiment with aspirin, it takes me at least six months to get through the IRB. So how the hell did this happen? So I like reconstructed the timeline. Like, but, uh, so that, that came out with science news, but, um, that, yeah, I, I don't know about those in particular. I will say that I do seriously respect our IRB. Like when I've presented them with ideas where they're learning new ter terminology or they're concerned or something like that, I, like I will spend time with them on the phone. I've had hour long phone calls where they're trying to understand the underlying physiology and like they will read the papers that I send them so that they understand what's happening. So like this group of people, maybe we can do some of this stuff because they put so much diligence into understanding where that threshold is of, um, of care for our test subjects and, and making sure we're getting truly informed consent and stuff like that. So I don't know. That's my little yeah. shout out to the Duke IRB. Right. <laughs> In the future of proteomics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Well, it was such a different, different world that you're, you're coming from. I think, uh, yeah, just the, because, you know, I, I think for us, I, I, I don't think it's, you know, a stretch to say that 90% of our problems are actually getting samples to run, right. That, oh, that are really? physiologically important or could solve problems. Right. It's more, um, but then, yeah, when you're, you're kind of looking at the flip side where, um, or you have samples, right. Or you generate samples <gasps> as a side effect, right. Of what you Friends. do. 
I just had an idea. Okay. Yeah. I'm starting <laughs> Ben and Ben. I'm starting a new okay, again, this is not even like the risk of scooping because it's so rare that people have these treatments. And if other people want to scoop, go for it. Um no, um, one of the things we regularly treat injured divers at our chamber. So half of our our complex is actually one big room. Our my lab that I work in is one big room. It's about the size of a standard movie theater because we have seven hyperbaric chambers that are all connected together like a series of hamster tubes. And yes, I crawl through them and it makes me very happy. Um, (laughs) But three of them are medical, four of them are science chambers and three of them are medical treatment chambers. And so on the medical treatment side, we regularly treat divers who are dealing with DCS and other dive related insults as an as the product of their own natural diving, we have not induced it in them. So they're coming to us as patients. And, um, I'm starting an IRB protocol to just, um, set up some non-invasive testing on them before they go into the chamber for treatment, because there is some setup time there. I think we should do a proteomics panel on them. And by the way, you have listeners. I, I will say our listenership are like the actual rock stars, you know, the whole community. So you can just sew it out there. Yeah. Yes. Email me. Easy <laughs> to find on the internet. <laughs> uh, I think um, it sounds great. Okay. This is, this is, I, I think this is what my earlier question was trying to get around to was like, Hey, yeah. what, how, how could our field doesn't seem like it's really touching yours yet. Um, how could we get in and help? So maybe, maybe that's, yeah. and that maybe that's the perfect place to start. So that would be awesome. Yeah. Especially yeah. if we could do saliva based. I think the Navy would be all over that. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not going to claim it on the air, but, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> podcast to get ahead. That's yeah. not what you throw money for. Do but, it. Do yeah. it. <laughs> um, I'm out of questions. Uh, this okay. might be the point where, where we thank you. Oh, your- cool. Yeah, no. So cool. this is, I, I can't tell you how much fun this was. Good. I, I enjoyed it too. Um, like I said, before we started recording, my favorite thing about conferences and scientific meetings in general is hearing about what's not in the paper about people and, and what their other interests are. And I think that's where the best collaborations come from because it is not psychiatrically possible for me to know everything I've tried. It's just not going to fit. And so like, I love talking with people like yourselves who have expertise in areas that are different from mine. So I really appreciate you inviting me. Well, thanks for coming. Um, it was huge. So big, thank you. (laughs) Um, okay. So this is the part of the show where we do the credits. Uh, the views expressed are solely ours, not our employers, um, also, or, or US Hupo. Um, we want to thank US Hupo for sponsoring this. Uh, Johannes for an intro and exit song, which you haven't heard yet. Um, Kaylee Kirkwood for the artwork. Uh, keep subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do thumbs or reviews. We appreciate it. And again, um, thank you. Thank you.